So welcome. Uh. So I know uh, sometimes people take uh, take notes during talks, right? And I've always kind of wondered what those notes look like a month later. I don't know, but it's probably like star, star, bold, underline, and then the conclusion, love is good. And and you look at it and you're like, duh, you know. Because um, we won't be reading those notes with the same mind that we wrote them. The mind not our own, it's a convergence of many factors. And um, in, you know, a day, a week, a month, it's going to feel like we're back to, you know, what we call our life, real life. And um, in our retreat may feel this may feel like just a kind of distant fever dream or something. Um, But it's worth asking the question like, what's real about that life or this life or any life, any moment? And a lot of what, what really qualifies is like real life is just the intensity of coping with samsara and the the complications arising out of wanting. And um, so what I want to say is um, even though in some sense, this is an artificial way of living, what we've been doing. What I want to say is that um, what you're feeling now, sensing now, is actually very important, just as real as anything. And, um, you know, a Dharma talk is, it's, it's at one level an exchange of information, but um, in another sense, it's really a kind of invitation into a em- kind of emotional, dharmic ambiance for you to catch the drift of my mind with yours, yeah? Your heart, my heart resonating. And that creates a certain kind of 
porousness and receptivity and a retreat is also about learning but it's it's likewise is a kind of invitation into an atmosphere and it's an atmosphere that's at once quite foreign and deeply familiar it's strange routines and rituals and and the feelings that arise the kind of general tenor of the mind is is different in in retreat the motivations we develop different the heart tender the urgency of love very obvious kind of poignancy of our life just starts to bear down on us and um, and this is kind of distinctive in a way to retreat but it's also something that's um, feels very much native to our heart um, it feels like maybe something we've forgotten but are remembering and um thought about, you know, Plato, the philosopher said, like, all, all knowledge is, is basically recollected, it's remembered. I don't know that's true, but it, it feels like that. It feels like we're, we're remembering something about ourselves. And sometimes, you know, when, when people first fall in love they maybe sometimes a, a person might say you know it feels like i've known you all my life and when we come to open our heart to dharma it has a very similar kind of feel of it almost like oh it feels like i've known you it feels like i've been known by the dharma somehow my whole life. And as um, the path ripens and deepens, um, the busyness of, of life, of course, it never stops. Busy, you know, busy is just another word for samsara, really. The kind of relentlessness of sensory experience. That doesn't stop, but um, love never feels far. It feels um, almost like it's always in our peripheral vision. And so many things start to remind us of the Dharma. So here on retreat, um, you know, part of what we're doing and kind of becoming more porous is that we become more receptive for the learnings that we have to make deeper marks on our heart. 
that's that's part of what the silence does what the what the, all of the practice does what the simplicity does what the the agreement you know the sila the ethical conduct taking the precepts being careful with each other part of what it does is it's like an, a certain aspect of samadhi, not the silence of the mind, but the receptivity of the body. The receptivity of the body. And what we learn in the context of that softening uh, leaves, leaves deeper marks on us. It was... Um, teaching, uh, went back to, to UCLA to do some teaching for mindfulness for, for undergrads. And, and I went to see my old research mentor. I left kind of the research world um, over a decade ago now and went to see, you know, research person, addiction, addiction medicine uh, uh, researcher. And, um, and, uh, and he used this word uh, that I'd never heard before. He used this word, uh, neuroplastogen, neuroplastogen. And, um, and that kind of new word is, is alluding to things that make our brains especially malleable, right? And we were talking in the context of, um, of medicine, but probably exercise, aerobic exercise has some of those effects. Um, and I don't know, but if I had to guess, I would say uh, retreat is a neuroplastogen. Yeah. The mechanisms of learning are, uh, they're more open. We've been softened in a certain way. We flail in all these different ways and we think we're not getting it right. And meanwhile, you can't help but keep deepening because there's no way that one little noise would be driving you so insane if you weren't deepening. Yeah? And so we interpret, I'm doing it all wrong, with all these things. Like meanwhile, the kind of heart is like dropping in. And what we learn, what we learn, um, leaves a deeper mark. And maybe on this last night of retreat, some of the things you've touched into um, feels, feels sacred in some way. And maybe there's some concern about losing heart connection to that. And uh, yeah, things will change, but... Um, one teacher, uh, Jesse uh, Basio Vega Fry, says, um, gave a whole talk, and uh, the phrase was, protect your love. Protect your love. 
this is both an artificial setup and as real or realer than anything. So Roxanne said um, two, two wings of awakening. We usually the language wisdom and compassion. Thich Nhat Hanh uses understanding and love. And, um, and wisdom really revolves around becoming, uh, sort of becoming a grown-up about our existential situation. One way of thinking about it. Becoming a grown-up about our existential situation, the predicament, perils and promises of being human, having been born. And love is really the only tenable response to that wisdom. Pascal said, um, we, we conceal it from ourselves in vain. We must always love something. So what, uh, what will we love? The, the Buddha was not a theoretician, was really uninterested in any views or opinions that do not catalyze freedom, was not interested in fighting for the truth of this doctrine, the falsity of that one, was very interested in really the on, only the kinds of knowing that catalyze freedom and in a certain sense almost defined truth as that which leaves freedom in its wake. So the, the truth, the wisdom, um, as we've alluded to this, um, uh, both... both um, colleagues alluded to this, uh, the, the centrality of a kind of visceral understanding of the three characteristics. You, usually, you know, dukkha, nietzsche, not uh, dukkha, you know, usually suffering. I've used the word ambivalence on this retreat. We might also say helplessness. We also might say uh, incompletion. Not that everything is difficult, but nothing, almost nothing, brings a sense of completion. And anicca, impermanence, uncertainty, unreliability, and anatta, not self. This is bhante gunaratana comes a point in insight meditation when the three characteristics of existence, unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, selflessness, come rushing home with concept-searing force. You visibly experience the impermanence of life, the suffering nature of human existence, the truth of no-self, 
you experience these things so graphically that you suddenly awake to the utter futility of craving, grasping, resistance. In the clarity and purity of this profound moment, our consciousness is transformed. All that's left is an infinity of interrelated, impersonal phenomena, which are conditioned and ever-changing. Cravings extinguished and a great burden lifted. There remains only an effortless flow. very potent, succinct distillation of the kind of one of the trajectories of freedom. But the process is not straightforward and not a straight line. We do not go from resistance and delusion to wisdom in a direct way. So what we find is that um, often it's almost like the Dharma has to break our heart before we feel its freedom. Before truth frees us we grieve truth. But importantly, dukkha is meant to soften us. Anicca is meant to soften us. Anatta is meant to soften us. Meant to along our way, make us more um, sensitive to love, make hatred less and less tenable, make awakening more and more urgent. So yeah, dukkha, suffering, stress, meant to soften us. Sajjan Sajito. There's a saying attributed to Lao Tzu in which he defines a great being as someone who encounters difficulties but never experiences them. It's because problems are problems when we're trying to find an answer to them or when we're trying to get away from them. Problems are problems as long as we have the idea that there shouldn't be any. But when problems difficulties, obstacles, hindrances, are taken as food, something that you learn to chew over, digest, take in. They become part of life rather than something outside of you, attacking you, something to be blamed. As long as we think about ourselves as being separate from what happens and from each other, we remain tiny, frightened, Handled wisely, the problem that confronts you, the issue or the person you want to keep out, offer opportunities for you to grow larger. Relax, the resistance learn, and you'll grow.
I, I don't read this as a, an endorsement of passivity or something that we can't go about working with the difficulties inherent in our life. But we want to be clear that um, um, in actually, in working with them, in working with them, um, we're, we're working such that our heart is softened. And so we can ask, like, are we, are we centering our life? Are we centering our heart awareness? And it's so natural for us to try to leverage the Dharma to resolve the tangles of our life. But, um, but that lets the problems stay too real. And so we, we actually shift in a way and, um, and we actually center the heart and trust that caring for that, the byproduct of that care is a life that increasingly works. We all... Um, and we'll encounter difficulties. There's no uh, no dukkha-free path. The Buddha had back pain, right? And um, but we we want to be careful about the ways that the habits of avoidance solidify the first noble truth into problems. Does that make sense? The way that the friction actually solidifies the dukkha that is inherent in our life, in the Buddha's life, into what we call a problem. And so we might experience unpleasantness, certainly fear and longing. We'll have to experience all those things, but we don't exactly have to experience a problem. Problems are problems as long as we have the idea there shouldn't be any. My very first um, client, that, the, when I was a social work intern working in uh, Los Angeles Department of Mental Health and um, and to get to get care at uh, the place where I was was interning had to be, you know, very lada dukkha. And um, and so this person, he, um, I remember he, he had been homeless, partially really by choice, but homeless for a couple decades. And uh, he had cancer, was recovering from cancer, had neuropathic pain, and, um, and was prone to very deep uh, depression. But um, he had done some spiritual practice, and um, 
I remember this kind of like very hallowed sort of sacred moment, you know, where I'm like brand new, just trying to be useful in one way or another. And we're talking about all the difficulties, right? And at some point he just kind of like made this gesture where he just sort of like raised his hands like this and just said, where, where are my problems? Yeah. And just as he kind of looked out to space. The sense of um, the avoidance, the kind of friction, which I really do understand, just creates the sense of duality of something to protect and something that's being persecuted. And um, so Ajahn says, when we think of ourselves as being separate from what happens and from what each what, from each other, we remain small. We remain small. We lose touch with the kind of ourselves as this node, you know, in a interconnection. And um, so we take our problems to be like food, you know, like food. May I not squander this suffering. May I redeem it by almost alchemically transforming it into wisdom and love. And so we call it purification. And it's really the beginning of associating difficulties not merely with pain, but with growth. That this can happen, difficulties can be associated at a deep level with growth. The necessity of moving through. And we we start to feel, yeah, we just start to feel life, its beauty, its imperfection in our tissues. I know Anicca, Anicca is supposed to be liberating, right? But to me, it's always terrifying. You know, like, like Vance said at six, right? It's not enough. And I think I had the sense like, I don't know, you know, like if anything's going to be enough. That sense of life just kind of slipping through my fingers. I think for a long time and still sometimes still kind of haunted by the ungraspability of life. And, uh, And sometimes, you know, change is is slow, barely perceptible, sometimes very quick in the case of a death. 
very quick. It was at a family member's funeral the day before we started. And it's like amazing how the the mind just, it just like the heart-mind just cannot catch up with anicca. It takes a long time for the heart to actually grasp anicca. Because the default assumption is one of permanence, not impermanence. And so to see a person over years, we're not just appreciating them in the moment, but we're like simultaneously predicting their future existence. And so there's something so startling and almost unbelievable about change, not merely death, but any big change. The mind catching up with the Nietzsche. But if um, Nietzsche does not soften us, it will make us more brittle and more will almost double down on the control and clinging, you know, try to hold it tighter, but um, can't, there's no, no banks in this river change. And so, the kind of real redemption of the, the, of the pain of opening to a Nietzsche, we call it grief. The redemption of grief is a deeper, fuller, more radical love. Zen teacher, Norman Fisher, when someone you love is gone, that person can't do anything anymore. That means you have to do something, or that you have to do something differently. Somehow you, who are connected to that person, have to do what they can no longer do. You have to ask yourself, now that this has happened, what will I do? What will I do in place of my friend? there is always something to be done. When we stop creating the unnecessary suffering, we can notice all the real suffering around us. All the fake unnecessary suffering is actually distracting us, protecting us in a way from the real suffering around us. The real suffering is much more intractable It's horribly painful, but it connects us to everyone else in the world. And so, in that sense, the real suffering is okay. We become numb and isolated because we want to avoid the suffering, but it's this numbness and isolation that feel the worst. When we break through the unnecessary suffering, 
and connect with others. It's hard and it's painful, but it's also better when we open up to the real pain of caring for others, we do feel better. Softened, softened by anicca, before it becomes freeing, it must soften us. softened by dukkha, softened by anicca, and anatta, the emptiness of self. And this is, um, this is often considered a kind of like one of the, the central sort of like, quote, wisdom teachings. To... Um, to be freed of the habit of personalizing samsara. Kind of subtle grandiosity in it. To be freed of um, the territoriality of selfing. In a way, we, we can say the, um, the hallmark of ego is one of, a, one of the hallmarks of ego is defensiveness. To claim territory is to become territorial. To claim self is to become a guardian at the gates of self. The brain researcher Jennifer Beer says um, that, you know, talking about, yeah, talking about brain, some of this stuff, she says the increased resting metabolism of the medial prefrontal cortex is theorized to support a default psychological mode of self-evaluation that provides chronic generalized updates on the self. Is there a phrase more nauseating <laughs> than chronic generalized updates on Matthew? <laughs> like, <sighs> literally having chills. <laughs> we start to notice, yeah, clinging, clinging to self-view is very, very fertile ground for many afflictive emotions. Almost like we claim self to orchestrate our safety or something, but it just uh, makes anything and anyone a potential enemy. And we have to sort through the visitors and the trespassers and all of this. And so, um, 
we start to see, yeah, rage, envy, defensiveness, uh, shame, all these things depend. This is the underbelly of self. And of course, self-clinging makes just bumps love like lower on the priority list. It's like, first, let me just nail this. Make sure everyone knows who I am, you know. Then if there's enough energy left over, maybe a little love, you know. But first, let me just tell you who I am. Yeah? And that kind of egoic pressure leaks out and requires capitulation from others, adaptation from others, them kind of contorting to the particular constellation of our egoic pressure. But when the self is less and less of a preoccupation, a lot of room for love a lot of room for all of the Brahma-viharas. I, I kind of wish it wasn't um, called not-self. Not um, that sort of gets confusing, I feel. But maybe it's something like not non-ownership. The, character in the TV shows as um, played by uh, the, the Wire, Michael K. Williams. And um, character is Omar, this kind of mythic, you know, very, yeah, just wild, fascinating character. And, um, and so in this, in this series, this is from years and years ago, in this series, um, uh, takes place in Baltimore, and Omar, Omar is is um, robbing robbing a drug dealer in this scene, and um, and uh, it's kind of like getting the money, the drug dealer's money. The drug dealer says, like, you know, this like really mercenary kind of character said, like, "Hey, that's my money," you know, like almost disbelieving, and. Um, and Omar's response was, um, uh, money ain't got no owners, only spenders. And I thought, uh, selves ain't got no owners, only spenders, only expressors, manifestors. And it's a wisdom teaching, yeah, but anatta is actually about love because um, self-hatred, self-hatred just, yeah, just it's the most rigid, congealed form of self. It makes the self a kind of preoccupation. And self-love is what allows us to actually forget the self. And by self-love, I'm talking about this very deep acceptance 
And when we understand anatta, we're not left with like some new, better ideas about who we are, like a newly curated sense of self. What we're left with is a deep appreciation of the innocence of our conditioning. We're moved by our goodness. We're accountable to our neurosis. None of it a cause for shame or arrogance. And so as that, um, as that, that kind of acceptance deepens, 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 there's this kind of, um, yeah, just a deep forgiveness and, and, and in fact like playfulness, playfulness with our own pain and the habits that get us into trouble. And um, sense that it's, it's our work to, uh, uh, to tend to our heart. And our personality does not go away as we come into this deeper, loving, self-forgetting. It's, but it's like our personality is freed of some of its compulsivity. The, the pressure that drove it. And we just become weird in our own way. Yeah. Like, your freedom will not look like mine or the other person's. It's still going to carry some of the kind of uniqueness, but it's now it doesn't have kind of the same pressure So, um, some part of us, I know, I know, some part of us desperately wants to control. And some part of us desperately wants to surrender. Let go. And of course, we can't always side with one side. But what's left in the wake of letting go, what's left in the wake of surrender is very quiet, potent love. The hatred requires energy, clinging, love, Yes, only that we let go. Doesn't need to be manufactured in the wake of that letting go. Andy Olensky said ownership is a node around which greed and hatred coagulate. So maybe you can even feel into the freedom. non-ownership. And so what's left when, uh, when Dukkha, Nietzsche, Nata has, has like 
churned its way through our heart. Kind of reverence for having been born and for whatever time we have left. Reverence for this path, for the heart. Everything is, uh, is done. Just given. Something Michelle McDonald says often, just, yeah, your body, this breath, done. So, yeah, uh, love is good. Mm-hmm. Sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.